You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 108 of Arsenal Pass, back from PT Baltimore and joined by Mr. Tarek Patel. And of course, Hayden Dale, who was unfortunately on a work trip, got to watch from afar. Let's go ahead and get into it. Weeks in flesh and blood. You know, pretty obvious, Hayden. I was at the PT. I was casting. Tarek was playing. You were watching. Um, I just want to get your your high-level first impressions compared to other PTs. So PT, PT1 in New York, PT2 in Lille. Do you think that this was potentially one of the best productions and tournaments that they've put on? Hayden, you can go first from a viewing perspective. <laughs> from a spectator standpoint, yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I mean, I thought it was pretty clean. Like there was really little downtime in the the broadcast comparatively. There was still some downtime, but um, they always seemed to have backup matches to go. It seemed to go a lot smoother from like a, a viewer standpoint so there was a lot less technical issues i would say the the issues they seem to have were on like not having the players names and records right uh, on the overlays because they seem to look like they set them up and then they couldn't change them for whatever reason um not sure what, what that was happening but um yeah i mean i i really enjoyed the the broadcast and i think as well with the pt the matchups we got as well kind of leaned into that as well you know i think in previous pts from uh, going back and watching the broadcast afterwards the vods and things like that maybe some of the the, the matchups weren't things that people wanted to particularly maybe watch and there was a bit more diversity and then we had draft as well and i just think this draft format is a little bit more interesting to watch than say uprising uh before it so yeah i, I enjoyed watching the broadcast from afar unfortunately Tarek as a player as a player, it was awesome. I think everything ran like clockwork. Uh, every event was, you know, running on time. Uh, the elevated play area with the feature match area, I think, was a huge step up. It kind of gave the whole feature match area this extra kind of level of oomph and, you know, prestige that I think Lil and even Worlds was kind of lacking. Um, all in all, like from the live blog to everything, I thought it was A++. I know there were a lot of moans and groans about the initial location Baltimore, but even like the area itself, like by the pier, super nice. There was a bunch of really good food spots. Uh, not the ones I chose, but you know, I heard other people had really good food experiences. Um, the the one thing I, I do wish that they had that I think Worlds did a little bit better was the coverage of the actual draft portion themselves. Uh, I'm not really privy to the reason they moved away from that, but uh, otherwise, I thought the the coverage was fantastic. Yep. So yeah. you know, talking from behind the scenes, actually, both of sort of two plus points for each of you are actually they work in tandem, right? So the reason why there was um, less sort of less downtime on the production side is because SCG ran the tournament so well, um, and there was so little time in between rounds, right? Rounds weren't really extending past their um, initially planned time, and you know, tournament was really quick as opposed to potentially some other tournaments, especially in draft, where you can just end up randomly in these in in these sort of draft situations where somebody's pod is taking like an hour to finish or something because there was some mistake. But other than that, it was buttery smooth. And I think that that actually led to um, less downtime um, as well as I guess we had some interviews to fit in there as well. Well, anyway, we're going to talk about all that. That is the focus of this week's pod. Just going to head into the news first real quick. So 
P team Baltimore, Michael Fang is your champion on Oldham. Um, sorry if that's a spoiler, but it shouldn't be at this point. It's everywhere. Uh, Michael Fang, obviously a very deserving champion and a hardworking player. We're very, very happy for him. Dust Till Dawn was sort of revealed. We had a bit more of a trailer. Prism was revealed at 16 life. Vincent is the new, or Vincent is the new Shadow Runeblade. Uh, the card preview season is from Friday, the June 30th to Sunday, June 2nd. Uh, there is Monarch draft coming up. So, James actually spoke about this in the keynote, talked about how, you know, with Uprising in particular, we met a sort of extremely long draft season with Uprising. And even if it was a good set, I think most players would have been fatigued by the time we got to the World Championship or even post. Um, so this does serve as a band-aid for that. Monarch was the set that a lot of US players in particular started with, even European players, and it's heavily underdrafted because of COVID. So it is being used in the Road to Nationals, the upcoming Road to Nationals season and with pre-release for Dust Till Dawn. I think it makes total sense. The Commander Cook got questions about that. We'll be getting Hayden and uh, Tark's sort of thoughts on it as well. Um, anyway, it's a 236 card set, one fabled, eight legendary, 56 majestic, 77 rares, 94 commons, and 10 marvels. The Calling Antwerp was announced. It's going to be on May 19th to the 21st, um, and it's classic constructed, but they won a day two and top eight, of course. The Road to National Seasons that we talked about is on May 20th through June 4th um, in the United States. I think there was, maybe it was APAC was a slightly different date, but for, I think most regions, it's going to be May 20th through June 4th. And the for other dates, I think Europe's yeah. the change because of Antwerp, okay. they get like an extra weekend, I think. Yeah, even if it is slightly off, it's, it's very, very close to that anyway. And that's going to be CC and Outsiders draft. Um, which I think it's great. <laughs> Actually, keen to see a lot more outside of draft moving forward. Uh, the Prism statues. The thing that they announced back at Worlds um, were actually kind of revealed in more detail at Pro Tour Baltimore. Um, and there's a hundred of them. So that's the thing. There's a hundred of them. I think they're accompanied by these like Marvel Prism cards uh, that are graded and stuff. There's one PSA 10 and somebody just hits the jackpot with that. So Prism statues, hundred of them. I don't know how you get them yet. Um, Worlds, <laughs> Worlds was supposed to be announced at Pro Tour Baltimore and it is still uh. TBD. Yeah, apparently the backstory of that is that they're still trying to sign the contract a lot of negotiation, um, which is understandable. That's sort of how those things go. Obviously, we would love to know as soon as possible so that we can start planning because it is going to be in Europe, which is far away for all of us here. And yeah, all they said was the City of Lights. So a lot of people are rumoring Paris off the back of that. But I believe that they're probably talking to multiple venues and whatever pulls through fast enough is where we're going to go. Anyway. I feel like James White said a, a city with big lights. Uh, yeah, uh, so I was like... Hmm. City with big lights. Yeah, I was like, hmm, Europe? Because that's most cities in Europe, to be honest. <laughs> All right, on to the uh, the command and cookout section here. This is a question from me, and I just want to get Hayden and Tarek's thought on Monarch Draft in a competitive setting, both the road to nationals. I think that's actually extending to uh, maybe nationals. I can't remember. I know it happened in the keynote. You know, I was looking for information on the FabTG website. Weren't you there? Like, Weren't you there? I was. I just don't remember if they said it was at Worlds or if it was on Nats. But Road to Nationals, nationals. that's confirmed. Yeah, Road to Nationals is no, confirmed. So no. national. Go ahead. Just okay. Nationals. Just Nationals. Just oh, okay. Nationals. Yeah, so, sorry, <laughs> Nationals. Um, yeah, so it's going to be Monarch Draft in the competitive setting. What are your both of your thoughts on bringing back an older draft set? And if you have experience drafting Monarch in particular, did you have positive experiences? And do you think it will be a good set to draft at something like this? Tarek, you first, surely. Sure. So for me, I think this is really interesting because I joined Flesh and Blood in Tales of Arios, so post-Monarch. 
So I was never really around in the heydays of Monarch, but I heard it was crazy in North America. You know, I heard the first edition boxes were super hard to get. Anybody that could get their hands on them just made a bunch of money. I know Rob, uh, Rob Seigel, who really got me into the game, was telling me like his early heyday stories where he'd drive like an hour to like one of the only LGSs in America that would have the boxes and then just literally crack the boxes and sell the singles for almost double their value. And he made a killing on it. Um, so from what I understand, uh, it was kind of a really fun and exciting time in flesh and blood, but me personally, I never drafted this set, uh, outside of a couple of fun drafts. And I think I did one sealed event. So for me, this almost feels like a brand new set that LSS doesn't even have to kind of do. And I'm excited because I get to learn a completely new draft set in limited format. And from the little mumblings I've heard, uh, from my teammates, Nick Butcher, uh, Matt Rogers and so forth. I've heard Monarchs a fun draft set, so I'll take their work on it, and it gives me something you know new to do and focus on in terms of a limited setting uh, going forward into nationals. You, you should ask Nick how much he enjoys drafting Prism, and that's it. <laughs> I I think I the the main point I want to hit on is you said you know it feels like a almost like a new set without Alisis putting in effort, and I I think that's a really good point. I think Alisis have done a good job to decide to use a set that was, as you said, Brendan, underdrafted because players, a lot of the players who are playing now didn't, a lot of players like Tarek started with Tales of Aria or even later, um, you know, with with Uprising or Everfest. So there's a lot of people who haven't touched this from a limited perspective. Maybe they've cracked boxes, they've got cards obviously to play in CC and Blitz, but it's going to be a really interesting format to revisit for uh, limited. I'm glad we're not revisiting Sealed. <laughs> I played that Sealed format a reasonable amount for the calling Auckland, which was kind of the first of, um, I guess, this reset of callings. And the seal format wasn't particularly great. Uh, it was a lot of like prison piles and and things like that. So I think the draft format is a lot more interesting. Um, Levia, which is a hero that's been underexplored and underplayed in, in every format it's been in so far, is, is probably going to be, you know, it's going to be time to have a look at that. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad we're going we're gonna to get it. It's not, I would say, having drafted a bit, it's definitely not my favorite draft format it's probably not even top three i would say but I, I do think that there is some depth to it um having spectra in the format i mean that's another thing but <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, better so, and limited than it is in cc yeah so my experience with monarch draft is i really enjoyed it but i could be biased towards it uh biased towards monarch draft in the sense that most of the people that i drafted with definitely had an affinity for light heroes rather than shadow heroes just kind of how it was back then um, I think that, you know, in the modern day of flesh and blood, that's probably not going to happen at something like a nationals, uh, because people are so much better at the game. So it was a lot of fun to draft Levia or Chain when, you know, you had mono prisms at your table. <clears throat> I'm pretty sure that Collation with Monarch packs, maybe it was first edition, maybe it was, uh, unlimited can be pretty crazy and that the tables can, uh, the dispersion of heroes can be pretty wild. Uh, specifically Matt Rogers top eight draft pod was, <laughs> um, what six light heroes and then two shadow heroes. Uh, each of the shadow heroes meeting in the finals, Matt Rogers versus, uh, what was? yes, Kiki. So, Levia versus Chain in the finals. So it's an interesting format for sure. I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, and I'm, I'm keen to see sort of how it plays out when it's, when it's sort of set on the world stage. And I think we might actually learn things, learn new things about an old format, which is particularly cool. That, that calling final, that calling final, that wasn't a, uh, or that calling top eight. I, I don't think that was pack collation. I think there's a lot of people in that draft uh, forcing prison. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I can see from that. what I remember. <laughs> a lot of people really had an affinity for those light heroes because what's interesting about the light and sh- uh, the light and shadow split in Monarch is that <clears throat> the light heroes is like especially for a newer player or maybe someone who hasn't practiced as much with the shadow heroes, they actually don't really have an apparent downside where I think with the shadow heroes, you can just actively lose your ga- lose yourself the game consistently. Whereas the light heroes, it's like you more lose the game from, I don't know, less apparent factors, right? Maybe your deck just sucks because you're drafting something that's overdrafted. But with like the shadow heroes, it's like, wow, I died to blood debt. I got fatigued. Wow, my chain deck just doesn't have enough gas or something. But uh, yeah, it's... It's, it's kind of a funny format. <laughs> I like the, the light and shadow split. On to PT Baltimore, main topic of the pod. Um, I just want to hit back first on the location and venue. I know we had a lot of, you know, Baltimore not probably being the sort of travel destination a lot of people are looking for. I think that post-event, I would probably hold true to that. I do think that, you know, the New Jersey one was way cooler, being able to go to New York. And, you know, I actually look forward to going there. While Baltimore is, it was not bad. Like, I think that Tark is right. We stayed in a relatively nice area in the Inner Harbor. It was all good. Um, I didn't have too much time to explore the city uh, per se because I was kind of busy on the weekend. But I did hear from people that weren't staying in the Inner Harbor uh, that maybe had chosen a more economical situation situation uh for accommodation had a bit of a rougher time (laughs) maybe some rocks being thrown at the ubers and some somewhat dangerous scenarios but i think that that's sort of just how american cities tend to be is they have nicer areas and then they have a little bit more dangerous areas you just gotta keep that in mind overall baltimore i think was a fine location the actual venue was pretty cool like the architecture like the brutalist architecture but uh yeah outside of that it's fine. I think it's a fine location. The weather was absolutely abysmal, though. <laughs> what, what I took away from that is, is uh, hey, if you're in the US and you go outside of the city, you'll get rocks thrown at you. Oh, uh, no, it's not outside the city. It's just like in, in the US, there's just like, I don't know. Yeah, they, there's just dangerous parts and not dangerous parts. And I guess that's how Baltimore is. I didn't see it. I just heard it from secondhand. But at the end of the day, people can say what they want about Baltimore. But I feel like half the PT got robbed in San Jose. Everybody just keep that in mind. Anyway, on to the meta, <clears throat> which I think is the most particularly thing, the most particularly interesting thing about this pro tour is the classic constructed meta and how much it shifted over the sort of month prior and leading up to the pro tour. So let's just break it down to sort of phases. Early April tournament results looks to be an Azalea dominated meta. Um, you know, Levi and Brody meeting in the finals. Other decks in top eight, pretty diverse top eight, but looks like Azalea is sort of the breakout deck from Outsiders. Fast forwarding a bit, <clears throat> we see a double Oldham finals between uh, Trent McBride and Pat Eggshee. Azalea making it into the top eight, but you know, now it looks like Oldham is the rock, and I think this was the narrative going into the tournament was Oldham is the deck. If you can't beat Oldham, why are you bringing that deck? And Oldham is sort of the control on what deck you can bring. Well, 48 hours before we get to everybody's in Baltimore, I'm walking around venues, I'm walking around tables, you know, I'm in the hotel lobby. Oh, what are you playing? Not Oldham. What are you playing? Not Oldham. What are you playing? Not Oldham. Well, you know what they were all playing? Lexi. So Lexi seems to be the deck of the tournament at that point. And I go and quickly switch my top eight predictions because everybody I talk to is on Lexi. Now I'm going to pass it over to you, Tarek, because you were probably a part of this process. What did that meta end up becoming sort of like on the eve of the pro tour like how did it shift how hectic was it did you think about switching decks what deck did you ultimately play and talk to me sort of about the process of the of being a player at this pt yeah so everything you said was spot on and i think 
you know, Lexi especially was the best deck that nobody was really talking about leading up to the Pro Tour until actually you and I did our, you know, Twitter space, I think the Monday before the event. And then all of a sudden, you know, Lexi's everywhere, uh, first on people's minds. It's not to say people weren't testing her before, but I think a lot of people thought they arrived there without anybody else knowing. And it was kind of very hush-hush among like various groups. Uh, I, for one, took a much more up open approach to testing at this Pro Tour than I previously did. Previously, you know, I would just stay within the confines of my team. But I actually reached out and I tested with almost every Canadian I know from like uh, Yuki uh, to Jasker to every kind of Canadian around here. So it was interesting kind of getting everybody's idea and feelings of the metagame in the weeks kind of leading up. Uh, I myself, I mentioned it on our Twitter space, if you guys were listening, was kind of between Oldham and Lexi um, with a quick you know, consideration of Briar after talking to both Brennan and Hayden um, based on the metagame choice. Um, I think we largely got the metagame correct. You know, We said Lexi, Oldham, Dromai would be the top three decks, and I think that ended up being the case uh, almost to a T. Um, in terms of you know last-minute switches, there were a lot of last-minute switches in our group. Um, my good friend Matthew Dokes was actually on our Lexi deck right until like I think 10:30 uh, Thursday night, and we were playing mirror matches in the lobby. And I remember there's just one game where I go like Arctic Incarceration into Icequake into Arctic Incarceration, like back to back to back turns. And he just looks at me, he's like, I can't play this goddamn deck. And he just like picked up his deck, put it in the deck box. He's like, Nick, send me your deck. And he just, he just <laughs> leaves up like Nick Butcher's like 80 card deck, like in the 11th hour and, and just registers it and sleeps peacefully. Um, and I was very close to doing that as well. And we can delve more into that if you want on, you know, where Oldham was, where Lexi is, was in the tournament. But for now, I'll just say, I think the metagame's at a really sweet spot. Um, and I, I don't even think it's fully flushed out mm -hmm. yet, even after the pro tour. Absolutely. Hayden, you sort of were thinking Briar, uh, before the tournament, after seeing the tournament play out, seeing the meta breakdown, um, I guess the dom sort of Lexi's how much Lexi showed up might have been a little bit of a surprise, or maybe you were expecting it. What would you have done, you know, if you could retroactively go back and play that pro tour with the information that you have now? Would you have still picked Briar? And what has changed sort of about your understanding of the metagame and what deck you would potentially pick to exploit it? Yeah, I think uh, I kind of audible myself out at the very end of the last pod where I said, oh, actually, Lexi might overtake Ultim as the, <laughs> as the number one most played deck. Uh, after, during that pod, we kind of said, Ultim, Lexi, Dromai, just like uh, Tarek had said, with considerations of Azalea and Bravo kind of hanging around the top, which I think Bravo ended up being the fifth most played or even maybe the fourth most played. There was quite a bit of Bravo. I mean, it was a drop-off, right, after Lexi and Ultim, but um, there was still quite a bit. I, I think, like, I, I still... Kind of, that was the meta I kind of expected. Obviously, a bit more Lexi than maybe I initially expected. But I, I don't think maybe my list would have looked a little bit different. I mean, the the deck that would have been sitting there right next to me, and Brendan, I know you'll love this, would, would have been Kano. Like, I, I think people people started to, like, unfortunately, I think when I look at the top eight list, there was a lot more Oasis than maybe I would have expected, mm -hmm. Oasis Respites. But people were starting to cut those, you know, thinking about... Uh, the Zalia matchup, but I think people found that they were also still pretty good against Lexi, so uh, we're continuing to keep those cards, maybe unfortunately. So I, I think personally, through my testing, I probably would have stuck to Briar. But had I tested more, I mean, Ultim, I would have, I would have actually spent more time testing. I think for this PT, had I been really intending to go, um, and I really like the list that that Nick and and some of uh, some of your, your team ended up playing <laughs> Tarek. So 
I'd, I'd say I would have stuck with Briar though. I actually have a question for for, for Tarek though that I, that I want to I want to ask, which is the the Lexi mirror match. You were talking about about Matthew Dukes, you know, just kind of packing it in after we played that mirror match. That mirror match, from my experience, sucked. Like it was unfun. It wasn't enjoyable. If you knowing that what you what you knew or what you know now at least that there's gonna be so much potential mirror matches for Lexi, it, like it, would that have changed your consideration for the deck you played? Um, I don't think so because at some point I have to pick, well, so I, I actually wanted to play Dromai about a week out, uh, weirdly enough, cause I did think it actually had a good Lexi matchup. And, uh, one of the guys I was working with, uh, Aaron had, in my opinion, solved the olden matchup, which I think a lot of Dromai's to this day kind of still struggle with as evident by Michael Fang's win. Um, so maybe if I were to go back in time and then had like two weeks of extra practice, I would probably end up on Dromai. Um, but with that being said, I think I had a pretty good Lexi plan going in. Like, yeah, obviously you can get high rolled in certain situations and certain mirror matches can just like be a complete runaway. If one person sees all their, you know, three of a kinds and, and codex is early and you don't, but I actually think that the Ranger mirror is one of the more interactive aggro mirrors than like that there's ever been. Like, especially when you consider like Briar v Briar or chain v chain, mostly because a lot of the arrows present on hits that actually incentivize your blocking tendencies over your attacking where briar it was almost never the case right like you would never block with a snatch in almost any scenario where it's very correct a lot of the times to kind of just dump throw two cards in front of an endless arrow throw two cards in front of a remorseless so you get this actually very classic flesh and blood experience of like two card three card hands versus two card three card hands that you're blocking back and forth uh, my round one feature went almost the the complete 55 minutes, uh, and I ended up losing to a Rain Razors. But, you know, there are definitely the runaway games where people really kind of, that sticks in your mind. And I can definitely look back at my Pro Tour experience and be like, man, I had some, you know, key unfortunate uh, mirror situations. But by and large, I actually really enjoyed the mirror uh, throughout the weekend. Yeah, I had an interesting moment paradigm shift while I was at the Pro Tour. Uh, we had been on coverage. I've been I've been covering some of uh, Michael Fang's teammates' games, and he goes, he goes, Brendan, I got to tell you something about Lexi. I was like, okay. He's like, I want to give you some feedback. It's like, here we go. He's like, uh, Lexi doesn't have explosive eight card hands or seven card hands, which is well, you might think three of a kind might present. He said, Lexi has three carrion husks with no blood debt in the deck. That is how Michael Fang described the three of a kind and what it did to the deck is allowed you to block with two cards and effectively have a good, like a very good turn on, on the crack back. Unless, of course, the outliers, you do have the rain razors and you're able to go wider than usual. But I just want to point that out because I think what a lot of people talk about, <clears throat> you know, when they think about the three of the kind, they think about how it interacts with Lexi. They probably their mind probably first goes to these big explosive turns where you have massive amounts of cards, but I do think it is more centered around mid range blocking out and then playing those four card hands because even Lexi has trouble utilizing something like you know a seven or eight card hand. <clears throat> Hayden, you said something pretty interesting. I got to cycle back to you. you mentioned Kano, so I think that this pro tour was the pro tour where the most Kanos ever showed up. I believe it was nine. Um, I do think it was one of the worst mass <laughs> for Kano, which is pretty funny. But the what what. The reason why there was nine Kanos that showed up is because Alexander Vore finally got his team on the on the on the 
on the spice, right? Alexander Four got, made the fire start to burn with the team over there in California, and they all showed up on Kana. So, I mean, I will tell you that I saw Chris Ayali and the whole group of them sitting in the lobby every single night after the tournament, just playing Kano games and just laughing and having so much fun. And so I think that that group is going to permanently be on Kano. But I was surprised to see it as well. Hayden 9 Kano showing up. I do think it was a rough meta for Kano. Um, maybe could have emerged into that, given a few t- a little bit more time to mature. But like you said, the Aces for Spice were still in there. I think that Lexi could have been a, uh, a pretty tough deck. And I think that just comparatively, if you look at PT1 and Worlds, I do think those were better metas for Kano, potentially. Um, but yeah, I mean, Kano is sort of a, becoming a more widely adopted deck with us seeing nine people nine people on the deck. And a lot of those players did well. Um, and we, I tried so hard to get them on feature match. I really did. But I couldn't because they dropped a, most of them dropped a draft down or two. So on day one, it was tough. But anyway, the sort of emerging thing for me outside of the pro tour when it comes to meta is Jermai. I think that Jermai could have made number three on anybody's list, but you know, was very much number three and not a number one or two deck. Putting two Jermais into the top eight, I think that it exceeded what we expected for that deck, at least for me. Um, and we saw wildly different builds. Mara on this sort of red line aggressive build, um, Yuha on such sort of a more standard Jermai build. What do you all think about Jermai's performance? Do you think that we may be didn't really give the deck the credit it deserves. And do you think Jermai potentially has more innovation to come? Do you still think that deck is being figured out? Because I feel like the power level of Jermai and the success of Jermai um, is sort of increasing linear, linearly as we progress in time. And it's also very much subjected to a very small amount of players. The rest of the players who seem to pick up the deck do very bad with it, but the few people who have really put in the time seem to cons- are seeming to get consistent success. Anybody can take it. Um, I will say, because I made a pretty public tweet about it, that I think my opinion on the deck has definitely shifted. Um, Especially before, I believe, Dynasty, we didn't have some of the dust cards that Dromai has access to now. And I think that's given Dromai uh, a whole arsenal of tools that it didn't have before. Um, You know, in terms of results, I think Zero ended up topping the calling as well. So I think there's a huge kind of play edge as well, and and how you kind of plan your deck around, you know, certain matchups has a huge impact on how the deck performs. <clears throat> um, it's interesting because we don't know kind of how much draft kind of muddled drumize results at uh, the Pro Tour, um, but I I believe the top drumize players all had very good classic constructed records. They did, and I'm willing to bet that it was largely on the back of having a really good ranger matchup. Uh, that was one of the areas of concern I identified early on in testing when when playing Lexi. Um, you know, you almost instantly lose the game if they have an early enough tumultai. They could probably just fatigue you at that point. Uh, being able to pop your new horizons means you can only really attack with two arrows a turn, maybe three if you have a, a natural Gogan arrow in Arsenal. Um, so I do think Dromai had a very good Pro Tour experience on the back of uh, Lexi, uh, a favorable Lexi matchup. With that being said. Um, I still think a lot of the Dromai list that we've seen uh, at the Pro Tour, I know there was like touts of innovation because they were playing Seeker's Gloves or whatever it was, but the lists are largely the same. You know, there were some that were running more defense reactions, um, which in my opinion is not the way you you should be targeting the Olden matchup. And I think they still kind of are struggling with their same classical problems uh, into Guardian that they were before. Uh, but they got a good record out of it, and you know 
they'll be able to say, you know, look, Joma is a really good deck. You should be playing it, which it is a solid deck, but I still think their deck has a lot of room for innovation. And, you know, I just destroyed my passport recently, which kind of sucks. I accidentally threw it in the washing machine, but I was trying to get out to um, the calling in a couple of weeks over in Belgium. And if I were to go there, I'd probably take Joma myself. And I have a couple of really interesting ideas I want to kind of flesh out in the next couple of weeks. So, if I get a fast passport, maybe I'll be over in Belgium and slinging some dragons. Hayden, what are your I've, thoughts on Jermai post-performance? Well, first of all, I commiserate with Tarek because I did that after PT1. I got home delirious and tired, threw my jacket in the wash, and then like hung it out in the line. There's this black like ink patch down my like jacket. I'm like, fuck, come on. <laughs> you know, a few hundred dollars later to get a, a new passport. It's, it's frustrating. Um, I mean, I... I, the reason I wanted to let uh, Tarek go first is because infamously Tarek played a money match Ultim into uh, into Dromai after his big his big claim of, of how terrible and unwinnable that matchup is for Dromai. And, and what, what was the result of that match, uh, Tarek? I can't remember. I lost. <laughs> I heard somebody mention that on stream, actually. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but, but uh, like... I think you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head. I mean, there was also just I think Ian in ninth was also on Dromai, right? So there, there mm-hmm. was three Dromai in, in the top sixteen. Um, so it had a really a really good showing this weekend. I think if anyone's out there saying and and Tarek I know has definitely changed his tune on on where he thinks the hero sits. You know, he don't think doesn't think it's unplayable anymore. But I think anyone that was before the event saying it was it was a terrible choice or it was uh, unplayable just didn't probably understand what the meta game was going to look like because this probably was the best possible metagame for you know lexi really spiked ultim started to drop off azalea was still there uh some of the the decks just maybe weren't able to think about how they would attack drome i didn't have the right plans for it as well um and i think you see you know what 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 mara and 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 juha did i think from what i understand juha was one of the 6-0 drafters but that's still a 6-2 record in in class constructed so that's still an amazing record with with that hero um i think we're going to see a lot more people trying to understand drome after this and we're probably going to start to see it creep into more top eights. I do think it is that kind of, you do need that that skill edge because you have to adapt. Like you're playing a game where you're, you don't have a weapon. Anytime you're playing without a weapon, even, you know, something like Lexi, something like Dromay, like you do have to have adaptable game plans. You do have to understand what's going to happen when your opponent does X game plan versus Y game plan. And with Dromay, it gets even more complicated because you're playing with resources you're playing with ash you're playing with dragons you have to understand the conversion of how you're going to use those on any given turn or phase of the game i think we saw there was one particular game where i think might have been in the top eight where mara it might have actually been the the finals match where mara decided to make an ash quite early and i think got quite punished for it like i i think they're an ash ring rather i think there is like all these things can snowball quite quickly with dromai so um yeah i mean it's it's not only it's is it hard to play but it's it's not forgiving whatsoever Yep. <clears throat> Transitioning from that, there was one deck that I believe would have been a breakout, but in somewhat of an awkward situation that uh, we're not going to dive into on this pod. Uh, Azuri, there was a very good Azuri deck that was on stream, um, piloted by Tao Tao. It was a sort of fatigue-oriented Azuri deck that was destroying Lexis. Uh, the player was doing very, very well, but unfortunately um, was disqualified, and I'm sure that the sort of official reason will come out eventually. There's a process for that kind of thing. I just want to know if you guys saw that deck, um, if you thought it was well-positioned, if you expected it, because there was almost no Azuri that showed up to the tournament. There was less Azuri than there was Kano, and I'm pretty sure that player 4-0'd Class Constructed and was set up to be positioned very well into that top eight. Do you guys have any opinion on that deck, and did you see it? Yeah, so 
I'm one of the people that when new heroes are designed, I really like to kind of delve into it because I think the greatest edge uh, in a new metagame is playing something that's absolutely brand new and kind of finding something that you don't know is there. And very early on, I delved very hard into Azuri as like the kind of the premier new hero from Outsiders. And unfortunately, I came to a couple conclusions. One, her ceiling will always be kind of six damage a turn uh, optimally um, off two cards plus on hits. Um, and unfortunately, versus a lot of decks, that just simply isn't enough. Um, round one feature match, I believe Michael Hamilton beat an Azuri on Lexi. And, you know, even that's, you know, kind of your best matchup. It's still sometimes losable into kind of Lexi's best draws. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that being said, I do think it has a really good Lexi matchup. I think it has a very good aggro matchup. But where I do think it suffers a little bit is against Oldham, which is what I expected to be, you know, a good chunk of the field. And then Dramai, because... Dromai, of course, could just play a couple of dragons with more than two health. And it's very difficult for Azuri to kind of clear multiple dragons, um, given that their weapon only attacks for one damage. So given the fact that it had a kind of weaker Dromai matchup, a weaker Olden matchup, and then some of the aggro decks could even just outmath it with some of their draws was uh, kind of an off-put, off like turn-off for me going into the Pro Tour. Yeah, the deck that did lose, um, the Azuri that did lose to the to the to the Lexi player was a very very different build of Azuri. It was more of like that pummel kind of, I don't know, shakedown build, swapping things out, um, you know, playing the sort of reduction uh, attack reaction, uh, the damage reduction attack reaction shred, I believe it is. Um, the uh, the version that was doing well was very fatigue oriented, but we did talk to Tao Tao, and I was like, Tao, how are you gonna do? What are you, what are you gonna do against Oldham? What's your plan for Oldham? He's like, dodge it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it did look very, very strong against Lexi. And uh, the reason why I want to highlight is, you know, there was probably a lot of, you know, plenty of decks in the room that did did well against Lexi and maybe had bad matchups into the rest of the rest of the field was, um, you know, there was just almost nobody that brought Azuri. And I think that the power level that we saw showcased on stream, unfortunately, we get to see sort of it come to fruition, see if that player would have made top eight. Um, it looked like it had been uh, discounted a little too much. Like it was underrated. Didn't, didn't look like people had given it sort of the enough credence. Yeah. I, I mean, there's also 13th place. Francisco uh, was also on Azuri. Like there mm. there was actually Azuri in the top 16. And I think I agree with Tarek. I mean, my from my games I played with Azuri, I, I really don't know how you beat Ultim, um, which is, is, a, is a really big problem. And I heard Brian even say on stream, I think you asked him, you know, how, how do you go into the Ultim matchup? And Brian just goes, yeah, it's a tougher matchup. And I was like, oh, there's a there's a developer swerve if ever I saw one. <laughs> but I mean, I do think there are ways that you can beat Dromai. I don't think that is that is as bad as a matchup as Ultim is. And Lexi is a good matchup. And I think um, from what I understand, um, Francisco had, had quite a few games into, you know, not just Lixie, but a, a bit of a wider field and, and did, did put up good results. So um, that, that hero is interesting. I think I found the same thing as you, Tarek. Like there's not, right now, like the the ceiling is is like quite low on that hero, I think. Um, and, you know, I like free wins. So um, I kind of also kind of put that hero down. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's more, it's probably more oriented to like a very narrow metagame. You know, if Lexi becomes, one thing to consider is that, you know, Lexi is a hero that is quite far from living legend. It's going to be keeping the tools that it has for a long time, you know, dust till dawn. It, it really has to make a lot of other heroes very, very powerful, at least to complete with Lexi on the aggro, the aggro sense. Because I think like with Lexi, there's not a lot of reason to play other linear aggro decks, right? Um, and that's just, 
tends to be how it is. Maybe you could play Briar because it has uh, you know, a better X or Y matchup. But in general, probably Lexi is just a more streamlined version of what Briar is trying to do. So I think that with Lexi being so good and maybe becoming more and more popular because it is that linear aggro deck, uh, do you think that we'll see more of a response against that? And do you even agree with my statement? Do you think that le- like, if we look at this meta and we extrapolate it to the future, we can even say for the calling Antwerp, what do you think is going to be the most popular decks? And what do you think would be the most, the most, um, the highest performing decks? So if we look at the calling, by the way, <laughs> the calling had a Viscerai in it, which is old Z-Bun, um, Boomer Z-Bun on, on Viscerai, but it also was won by a dash. And uh, I believe it was a mid-range dash, uh, no, no confirmation on that, but won by a dash, Viscerai in top eight, etc. What does this meta become um, in the next month or so? Is it dominated by Lexi or do we see more of a response in decks to counter Lexi specifically? I think Lexi's going to be the most popular deck moving forward going into Antwerp. But I don't think it's going to be the best converting deck uh, at Antwerp. I think people will naturally gravitate to what they believe to be the most popular hero or the most powerful hero. Um, but that doesn't always necessarily necessarily convert to results. Um, I, I think the meta game is super interesting. It's actually, like I said earlier, I don't even think it's close to being solved. I could see a couple of Azuris top aiding <clears throat> in Antwerp. Uh, if they're beating up on the Lexis, I think Dromai will do very, very well at Antwerp. I will, you know, if I get together, I will be one of those Dromai players. Uh, I can see even Oldham beating the winners metagame. So if an Oldham player shows up and, you know, all the Dromais and Azuris are out there beating all the Lexis, then Oldham's going to do well. So I think we're kind of like in this very cyclical open metagame. I think Dash is another well-positioned deck that does really well into Lexi. Um, multiple versions of Dash that aren't the Tree Fog Dash. I'm, I'm sorry, Jacob Baugh and, and friends, but that version is just not playable right now. But the Agro Boost Dash is actually can outrace Lexi fairly easily. Uh, if you look back to the was it the Hong Kong players at Worlds that came top 16 with the Agro Boost Dash, you know, you go T Bone T Bone into Magnetic, and all of a sudden you've like four for one Lexi, and the game kind of just ends on the spot. So. There's a bunch of like really cool mid-range uh, dash decks out there that I, I think are primed to uh, see, um, you know, success. And I don't know. I'm excited to see where the metagame goes from here. I really hope the BNR doesn't hit anything too too mm. impactful. Mm. Famous, famously, when we do these pods, Tarek, uh, the ban restrictor will drop just about five minutes after we end this call. I would have thought as uh, how Alexis usually plan it. <laughs> so I, when it comes to the metagame, the kind of thing on my mind is. Pro Tour 1, we come out of Pro Tour 1, we go straight into a uh, road to national season, right? Was it a Pro Quest season? And Chain just kind of dominates the season, right? Like it's the most played deck. It hits Living Legend in in that season. I don't think we're going to see the same thing with Lexi. It's not going to be quite that extreme where it's like, okay, the best aggro deck in the format just kind of dominates uh, from from there on out. Um, The the one thing that's quite interesting, you you spoke about Dash, and I'd like to talk a little bit more about Dash because my kind of vote for the worst position deck that people were going to play heading into this Pro Tour was Dash. I didn't understand people playing, especially I agree on Control Dash. I thought people might try and play Aggressive Dash because I agree, you do. I think you have at least one good matchup in those top three. But my kind of thought was Dash at this point feels like the ultimate matchups, I don't know how people are beating ultimate. I congrats to um, the winner of of the calling because I understand he had to beat at least one mm-hmm. one ultimate one. in that top eight. But I, in my testing, I just can never beat ultimate with dash, no matter what. Play, like maybe one in every like twenty or thirty games. So I need to learn from some of these dash players. I know Sam Sutherland was doing it at the calling Auckland as well. 
but then also, you know, the Dromo matchup isn't isn't that great. And then you've got this Lexi matchup that if you're playing anything that isn't aggressive dash, I think is is pretty unfavorable for you. So I I really didn't expect to see dash do well. And I don't think it particularly did in the PT, but obviously winning the calling is, is a huge achievement. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Well, just want to hit on sort of the tournament efficiency real quick, because we did move from Channel Fireball to Star City. Um, just want to mention it was probably the most efficient streamlined tournament we've had in Flesh and Blood, uh, at least tier four events. It was very clean cut all the way through, not a lot of downtime, and a lot of players look at it as probably the best run tournament so far. Feature match area, big upgrade. So if you weren't at the Pro Tour, what the feature match area was, is it wasn't necessarily elevated. It was actually just on the ground floor, but it had sort of rafters around it where people could go up and stand and look over and watch the feature match. And it did put this feature match in sort of this like nested area where it was surrounded, uh, made it feel like you had spectators, kind of felt like a little bit like an arena. And I think it added a lot to the prestige and, you know, being able to watch it live, really, really cool. (laughs) Even those rafters almost broke one time. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, uh, there was a viewing screen for the general audience um, outside the PT play area. Huge upgrade. People have been asking that for a long time. And honestly, when it comes to Star City or CFB, they all know that people want it the problem is that people just say they want it after the tournament and then it never really gets put in but this time we actually had it so you could actually go out and watch the stream and there was tons of people sitting out there um towards like the top eight of the tournament so definitely a huge upgrade let's go into sort of the pt play we talked a lot about constructs let's go to limited outsiders limited sort of lauded as a great uh one of the greatest formats of all time for flesh and blood i was with brian gottlieb a lot this weekend and people did come up to him and shake his hand and say thank you and <laughs> it's just like a funny little situation for they for how much they love this they love this format um first thing i want to talk about that is collation so the collation was random packs um just a random assortment of belgian and japanese packs i don't know how random it was so obviously when you sit down for a draft pod you get three packs i don't know if you could have gotten like belgian japanese belgium uh but from what i heard people the people i talked to had like all of one so they all belgium all japanese the only downside that i heard potential downside and this could be a um could be a fallacy right like people could be perceiving this and not be the case but it did seem like the power level of some pods was a bit different than others so in particular there was one polish player that <laughs> showed a lot of people his deck and um he had what seven infects with plenty of zero for threes i think five razors edge it was one of those broken arachne decks i've ever seen then i heard about other people's pods being a little bit more mishmash Tarek, you were there you were on the floor what was your experience with outsiders draft at pro tour baltimore so right away in terms of pack collation, I will say the very first thing I noticed when I opened my packs and when I was just counting it out was that their fix that they kind of alluded to in the announcement wasn't to use one pack Belgian, one pack Japanese, but to actually mix the packs themselves being Japanese and Belgium. Mm. So there were like one card was Belgium in the pack. The next card was Japanese. And you could just see that from like the toning of the print run. But I think, you know, it, it was OK. Uh, that part didn't throw me off so much but what i think was uh the interesting part and it comes to you know your power distribution that you were mentioning was they don't use set boxes uh from what i understand uh this is all theory by the way so don't nobody take this as you know the gospel but i think when lss makes their packs wherever they make it and then they ship it out it's from random different boxes so when we draft at home or at our lgs's or wherever we're we're used to very you know normalized set distributions because even though there's variations in the printing sheets themselves that come off 
they are within a range of you know probability so you don't really get draft sets or boxes i guess with like five red infects or like multiple razor's edges but if you start taking you know three three packs from this box three packs from this box three packs from this box there are draft pods that are probably just naturally going to get more red cards and then conversely on the other side you're going to get draft pods that are on the lower end of that you know bell curve and, and a little bit weaker maybe no red infects um and i think that was throwing me off a little bit in my first draft i remember um i think i had like a, a really really good ninja deck i think i had like two red surging strike like three red twin twister one red spinning wheel kick and it was to the point where i was like like did they just up the power level of these packs like on purpose like i had this like conspiracy going on and i was like oh my gosh maybe they replaced all the yellows with blues and reds and you know and then and then i started thinking about it more and just like how the packs were kind of distributed and i'm like no because then i started seeing like other people's draft decks and then my second draft experience was much more low powered than you know my first draft experience so i think it was just the the variation of boxes and the mix of them uh is what i was kind of experiencing during the first draft mm-hmm Hayden, from the outside looking in, how I, again, like Tarek said, the only confirmation I have, and I don't even know if I'm supposed to be sharing with you if it's public, was that it was randomized of Japanese and Belgium in some way. So whether that was you know the cards in the packs or the boosters or whatever, take it for what it is. Um, Hayden, outside looking in, what do you think sort of about that solution? Is it what you expected as well? I spoke about this last week about what I thought they may or may not do, and. <laughs> I think I ended by saying I think the worst thing they could do is yeah, mix yeah. the packs because the, the 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 printing is different. It's visibly different between them. And it sounds like maybe it wasn't that big a deal, even though they, they did do that, um, Tarek. I that that I don't like that. I really don't like that. And I mean I wasn't there at the end, so I didn't experience it. So I can only speak from what I've heard happened and what that ended up looking like in the drafts. We didn't get to see a draft viewer, which I think is, you know, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen a draft viewer for both those yeah. drafts. I think those are those are really good on coverage. Um, mm-hmm. But you already explained that. I, I think, you know, I, I don't think that's ideal. I think they really need to make sure that they've got a solution for Worlds for the next set that comes out. And, I mean, ideally, the solution is fix the ability to match print runs across different printers is the ideal. I hope they can get that sorted for the next set. If they can't, I think they need to come up with a better solution for that. I, I just think that, like Tarek said, you know, when you start grabbing you you change basically what the collation is that's different that's not what that's not what the experience is for a product when you buy it off the shelf and i think that the experience and i know there was a lot of discourse on twitter about well these are the best players in the world you know they should be able to adapt to a situation yeah sure but does is that enjoyable is that an enjoyable situation to put players into i personally think it's not it's not an enjoyable situation to be put into uh, and I don't think it's necessary to put people into that situation either. I understand for this one with having two, you know, vastly different, well, quite, yeah, they are vastly different. I will say that print runs in different regions of the world causes those issues and to come up with a unique situation. Um, but yeah, I, I'm just not sure that that's, that's something I would like to see ever happen again. Yeah, the main reason I want to highlight this issue is because just so we can um, sort of record what the result was. I know we speculated a lot. We wondered what they would do. And now sort of we have a case study of what the solution was. And I think that's important moving forward if this ever happened again so what we could potentially expect because I do think that, you know, maybe you could get an edge by using this as a sort of quarter case to reference. Um, anyway, regarding sort of... I think of- Tarek has something to add, though. I think Tarek has something to add. Go ahead, Tarek. Yeah, I, I just wanted to really emphasize that I think I... like. I understand as a player why they did it because they didn't want you to kind of feel the packs and go, okay, this is a Belgian pack. 
So I know my opponent took XYZ class card and then kind of force a hero. So I understand where they're coming from. And if they didn't actually change the individual cards, like if they just took a red uh, Japanese card and replaced it with the same red Belgium card, I was okay with that. But I will say from a player point of view, it did change our drafting strategy a little bit, knowing the the power level box difference uh, that I mentioned earlier. Um, Brendan, we talked about a little this about this a little bit last week, but you know, Fatigue Azuri was one of my premier like fun backup decks that I love going to because it was super easy to draft. You know, it was kind of fail proof. Like if you're trying to go for a really good Arachne deck and you just qu- didn't quite get there, it's a very easy to pivot to. And I remember uh, Friday night after day one, we kind of sat together as a group. And when we were all kind of recounting, you know, oh, our draft felt kind of really powerful, this draft kind of felt really not very powerful, that I kind of, as a player, had to rule out drafting that defensive Azuri deck. Because if I was in a pod with kind of a little bit higher power level, that fatigue Azuri strategy just kind of falls by the wayside. Um, so I will say, you know, I do agree with Hayden a little bit when you're mixing boxes and stuff the experience isn't quite the same and it really forces players when you develop drafting strategies which has nothing to do with pack collation um it, it kind of changes what we can and can't do so all of a sudden you know my first draft on saturday i had to go in with a kind of on the fly draft plan where you know i can no longer kind of do assassin and then safely pivot to this you know safety net that i'd worked out for weeks beforehand so mm. i just wanted to add that because i think hayden brought up some good points at the end yeah, I think that's good to add. Um, in terms of, uh, so from, at least from the, the coverage perspective, the drafts that we did follow, we would, uh, we followed one pod for each day one and day two. Uh, the sort of the hero split was what we expected around that three to four, maybe five ninjas, but in this case, it was usually three to four ninja, or sorry, three to four assassin, uh, one to two ranger, and then two to three ninja seemed to split down that way in all the pods we featured. Obviously, not the case for every single pod. Um, the most powerful decks we saw on stream were Azalea decks by far, but the way those that tended to play out is the Azalea decks seemed to be a bit feast or famine. So we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of tape, we saw both tables with, I think, two Azaleas, and there was one Azalea deck that was just infinitely better than the other. Um, the best strategy we saw on the weekend, I think the sort of the safest and most perseverant strategy was Fatigue Azuri. We saw Alan Lau multiple times on stream take pretty average decks and perform extremely well with that strategy. So I think it was probably one of the most powerful things to be doing in the pawns that we followed. I uh, just want to sort of hit on that so we can remember it for the future. Uh, I did follow Lucas Oswald the 17-year-old prodigy on day two, and Lucas Oswald did force Benji from pick one, um, which was a sort of, when I talked to him after, was a decision between the power cards that he was passing less than an affinity for Benji. He did say they thought that Benji wasn't as powerful, so it was probably both of them, but didn't want to pass some powerful cards on the line to get other people in it. So we saw, I think Lucas did 0-2-1 or something like that, pretty successful with a uh, with the Benji force from pick one, um, which I just think is interesting in Outsiders Draft. I heard a lot of people talking on the day that they thought that Outsiders Draft did reward um, early forcing in some classes, uh, but I do think it's a particularly risky strategy, especially at the PT. Um, so yeah, just want to record that for, for the future. Um, last thing here. Yeah, so for drafts, following drafts, recording drafts, um, I just want to get this out there because I know we've talked about it, Hayden, but just so everybody knows, um, it's not with following drafts for the coverage team. It's everybody knows that it's better. It's, it's objectively better when everybody wants to do it. So that actually comes from LSS and it's in regards to tournament integrity. Um, 
So if you do want that change, definitely ask LSS to change it because I also agree that it adds a ton to the experience and it would be super helpful. Right now, all we have for recording drafts is me and Brian sit at the feature match pod or the feature draft pod and we basically go across from each other and record on paper. So it'll likely come out an article if they decide to use it later or something like that. Or I believe Karshan talked a little bit about it in the live blog. But yeah, if we want that change, it's not like Star City or CFB couldn't fit it in. It, it comes from LSS. Um, at that point, but I do think it would be awesome because we did we did it in some other tournaments, I believe. Is that correct? We followed drafts before. I think almost everyone. What do you mean by term? What was LSS kind of concerned about? Are you privy to that? No, just the super high level of like they don't want to do it because of something regarding tournament integrity. So something regarding like you know publishing the. I guess I mean if I was just to assume right, it's that you make that draft public and the players, you know, it's easy for someone in the pod to go look at exactly what they drafted. I mean. I feel like this is done in other high-level events. You know, the cleanest solution would just to be open decklist mm-hmm. for the uh, the feature pod. But I don't know. It would be interesting if LSS would expand on that because I think that is a huge part of coverage, and I think that's probably one of the most interesting parts of limited is the actual draft yeah, portion. Yeah. So I'll be interested to see what what happens going forward into worlds. Agreed. I, uh, I do think when it comes to when it comes to integrity, though, like one of the things about <clears throat> Flesh and Blood, I think open decklists punish you a lot more in Flesh and Blood than they do in, in other card games, uh, <clears throat> especially in, in limited. Where once you've seen, like, I remember going back to them playing like best of threes in limited events, and it's like mm-hmm. after the first game, it's kind of irrelevant. You've seen your your opponent's whole deck. You can formulate the game plans, and often the stronger deck if the players are reasonably matched, is, is going to win because you, you just understand what's in the deck. You can play around there, one of, you know, spike with frailty, whatever it is. And I, I think that is like a problem with open deck list. But even if that is the, the case, I think one solution would be to, you could run the draft afterwards. You could show the rounds of draft and then during the lunch break or whatever, you could show the draft, maybe get the player that 3 would the pod in or the player that was the draft viewer to, to talk through their draft with with the coverage team like, i think there's a lot of opportunities to to do that it's just about yeah maybe maybe how it's done i i do understand the integrity piece though i think if i was in a pod and they were you know it was like this is going to be open deckless because of coverage i would feel i wouldn't i don't know if i feel great about that to be honest mm-hmm. uh tark how did you feel about the skill level of the players in draft specifically at pro tour baltimore i think pro tour has always been kind of that next level um especially the Europeans are always kind of on their game. Um, I thought the skill level of all my opponents from, you know, the first draft to the second draft were pretty top tier. I think especially with draft being second after the classic constructed rounds meant that the cream of the crop naturally rises to the top. So uh, given that I was X1 in both my draft pods, you know, I was drafting with very competent players all throughout. There were definitely no freebie, uh, you know, matches I've played. And, you know, all my drafts were really tough. You know, I think people were staying very open for a, a really long time and I had to play my seat, you know, as best as I could just to get out of it. Uh, I will say my second draft uh, was a bit of a train wreck and I am super happy I got out of it with the 2-1. Um, and it was really interesting to how that happened. You know, just going through it real quick, the guy complete opposite for me. So four seats away, uh, my first round opponent, however you want to think about it. Uh, pack one, pick one, the Riptide specialization trap. And he was only taking like primarily traps pack one, uh, which ended up being so that not only I saw a lot of arrows, but the person two seats to my right saw a lot of arrows as well. And it actually ended up that like we ended up in a four ranger draft pod uh, through, I mean, in my opinion, through no fault of my own, because to me and the person to my right, it looks like there's a ton of arrows flowing through. 
when the other Riptide player is taking it. But uh, got out of it with the 2-1, and I have to tell this story because I said I would say it uh, going into it. Um, I played against Ian, the Ian TCG person we were talking about earlier, who was on Dromai, and he we we're, were both 1-1 in the draft pod, and he sits down across from me, you know, very European, very uh, coy about it, very tongue-in-cheek sometimes. He, he says to me, he goes, you know, I would ask how your draft pod go in, but given that you're one of four Rangers, I already know the answer to that. And so I just I just look at him and I'm like, I hope you know if you lose, I will never let you live this down. <laughs> <laughs> and he was on Benji. He was like a one of two ninja. And I actually ended up fatiguing him. So uh, if you're listening, Ian, there you go. I told you I'm never going to let you live this down. So. Did you tell him after the match? <laughs> I told him before the match, like after he said that, I just looked at him like, if you lose, I will never let you live this down. So, mm. There we go. Awesome. So, um, yeah, this weekend I was on the, I was on stream. I was commentating, um, just some things for me. I thought that it was a really well-run event from SCG on the back end production side. Some things I would change. I do think that they could potentially do some more audio work on the sort of like um, the post-processing, even though it's live. Um, I do think the audio can be, <laughs> the differential can be a bit big, you know, so the casters have like very different ranges and I saw the volumes are being adjusted a lot. Sometimes, you know, chat was complaining about quiet. I also would put someone, <clears throat> I would take a flesh, a competent flesh and blood player, competent enough. And I would put them on card images all weekend. Um, I think that we should have someone dedicated to card images and almost every single card that is talked about and in play should pop up. Um, I just know looking back at previous coverage from me watching magic, that was like critical to me enjoying things. And I actually avoided coverages that didn't have that. So I think we can step. I think we can step that up. To be honest, I don't think it's like a tertiary job. Actually, I think it's a primary job, and so I'd like to see that kind of change in the future. And I will sort of um, push for that. Uh, yeah, for me, I got the. I commentated mostly with Brian Gottlieb, who uh, made it easy. He's the best commentator in my opinion. So shout out to Brian. And then outside of that, I definitely did fuck a few things up, but it happens. Uh, most notably, I, it was really hard to call Michael Fang Michael Fang because I've only commentated Michael fucking Hamilton in that situation. So a few times I had to correct myself saying Hamilton. Um, but overall, great experience. Uh, really enjoyed it. Um, I do want to talk about some notable matches if you guys got, got to watch coverage. If you didn't, um, yeah, maybe you heard about them. Uh, specifically, <clears throat> Michael Fang's match, I think against Yuha on stream, two-hour match. Really, really good match. I think that if you're a, a player that's interested in what high-level Flesh and Blood looks like, that's a great example. I know the game is really long, <clears throat> and the game is a bit, you know, t first 20 minutes of the game, and then it's posturing, and then it's the last 20 minutes of the game, but you will see a, a great sort of display of card economy, game plans, pitch stacking, etc. And I, I talked to Michael Fang after, and I remember him telling me, he's like, yeah, I thought I was going to lose that game. I think from a certain certain point in the game, Michael Michael Fang, sorry, Michael Fang was actually kind of locked to win that game because he had stacked the pitch so well to counter stack Yuha. Um, but I thought Yuha played fantastic. Michael Fang's uh, staunch responses in particular during this ghostly touch turns came in very, very well. Uh, but Really excellent display from both players, and it was probably one of my favorite matches to watch. Um, outside of the finals, right? So I know I'm giving Michael Fang a lot of credit, but he did win the PT, and I think that it was very deserving because of how Michael 
pivoted his strategy in the finals, playing the same hero, by the way, obviously a vastly different deck. Mara had a very aggressive deck, but comes out extremely aggressive, pressures Mara on the two blocks, also stops himself from being opened up to Mara's better early game, because I do believe Mara's deck had a better early game than Yuhan. So those are two matches for me. Just want to pass over to you guys if you guys saw anything on the weekend that you particularly liked. Um, I already mentioned it, but watching Alan, Alan Lau um, in Limited on Azuri was also quite impressive. Yeah, I, I just want to echo that I think Michael Fang is an absolute master. Um, you know, I've been a fan of him for a while now, and I think he's probably, even to this day, um, maybe the Pro Tour change will change it now, but I've been saying it for a while. He's the most underrated player, if not in North America, if the world. Uh, you know, he very rarely makes you know, huge blunders, and he always picks, you know, relatively good decks uh, i know he said he kind of last minute wasn't his choice to pick, play oldham for this event but with this exception you know every deck he's kind of produced i've kind of taken notes from it and you know run with it from there even you know he's running belittle and chain before that was even cool uh, going all the way back to 2021 mm -hmm. um but yeah your the match versus yuha was super interesting to me because i played against yuha in swiss he ended up beating me uh, he's a very good player himself, very technically sound. Uh, all his plans made sense. Um, but Michael just maneuvered that game from start to finish. I'm actually surprised to hear that he thought he was going to lose it at one point. It's because he blocked He blocked a Chromite. He had a popper in hand, and he just had like a brain fart, so he blocked it with a non-popper. And that mistake, by the way, which is in a two-hour game, you can imagine how many turn cycles there are. Off that block, Michael, Michael Feng is like, I almost lost the game. He's <laughs> like, dude, come on. But I think that game really highlights to me, like the classical Oldham versus my experience. At least to me, the way Michael kind of played that game is how I would say the majority of my Oldham versus Drill, my matchups kind of play out. And, you know, it's how they really should and will play out. And it's kind of alluding to what I talked about earlier, where I think Drill, my players are still kind of doing the same old thing over and over again. And they're kind of hitting their head into a wall, even though they're changing, you know, a couple cards here and there. But I really think as a Dromai player, if you want to be beating Oldham, you should be doing it with the Dynasty Dust cards, not with their... They're trying to, like, overload on the Ghostly Touch and get these, like, really big, you know, final turns in. And I, I just don't think versus a very technically sound Oldham player like Michael, uh, you can reliably do that. And I think Michael navigated that game to perfection. I think Yuha played really well as well. Um, but at that ultra high level, I think that's how the matchup kind of plays out. And I think that was a perfect example of the matchup. I just have to ask you real quick. Do you think that there's any credence that should be given to potentially tumult tying the Null Room boots instead of the Crown to burn them all to try to kill the Elden player? I don't, uh, it's hard for me to recall exactly when tumult was dropped in that game. And if Yuha even had the graveyard economy to be able to pull off something like that. But when I did see the tumult, when I saw the tumult on the list, I wondered if it was an alternate win condition to hit the Null Room boots and potentially just burn them all to win the game. Um, it really depends if, so I'm not privy to their game plan. Um, if Yuha's primary, one of Yuha's primary gear plans was to get multiple burn the malls at one time down, uh, then it would be more in line to hit a null rune, null rune, uh, rather than crown of seeds. But, uh, in general, you know, you can't really control your first cycle pitch stack. And then even when you get to second cycle, old hymns will try and, you know, anti pitch stack, they'll try and line up their on hits with your burn the malls so it's not always the safest thing so if i was a drum my player i tend to just go with crown of seeds take their way ability away to kind of filter their deck very easily uh you still get that you know ab1 removed um and you don't have to kind of go all in on burn the malls yeah I, i'm just i'm super interested because it feels like for me <laughs> spectating that game 
there was definitely a point where we were in probably second or third cycle and I was seeing, you know, both sides of the board very much, you know, look from the top looking in because it's much easier to be a commentator than a player. Uh, but it did look like Michael had maneuvered to the game to a point where there was enough poppers in deck. There was a staunch responses to back up that there was almost no way that Yuha could win the game via the ghostly touch, uh, the ghostly touch end game. It, just, it, it literally looked like it could not win if both players didn't make mistakes. Like in the perfect game, um, the old him wins every time unless old him makes a mistake. Yeah, and that's been my experience too. You going back to that, you know, match that I lost uh, on YouTube, the, the charity <laughs> one that everybody likes to talk about. That ultimately was my game plan too. But in like a two hour two hour untimed match, you know, I should have presented AB two. Um, and if you want to play super safe, you can just play Arcane Barrier too if you have open deck list and perfect information. And you can kind of do that versus the classical Dromai plan. I know the the purple Discord Dromais are going to be up in arms and absolutely furious that I said it, but I think Michael Fang played that to perfection. And like you said, I, I, I don't think there was any point in that game where I thought Michael was going to lose. And I think that's saying something after I also think Yuha uh, played it to close to perfection from the Dromai side. I just think they need to adopt a different game plan. And there's new tools that LSS made available to them. They really just need to start adapting them rather than hitting their head against the same brick wall over and over. Hayden, any uh, notable matches that you remember? I think you've hit on some of the, the really good ones. I mean, the, I just want to shout out, <clears throat> you you already did, but Alan Lau, uh, who I just think is a phenomenal limited player, uh, just a phenomenal player in general. And watching watching him play, as you say, just so so clean with his plays. And um, yeah, there, there was a lot of good matches, I will say. And I wish we actually got to see a few more matches, like backup matches. I mean, watching the Reinar beat the Icelander it was, a, it was a fun thing to watch as well. But yeah, there would have been... There were some great backup matches. I think, unfortunately, we didn't get to see just because of time. Um, that would have yeah. been would have been nice. I, ho- I hope maybe that maybe we get to see those somehow. That would be that would be great. Maybe Elysis upload them or something. I mean, there's there's extra content. They're free content for Elysis if they want to use it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a I think it's a great idea to be honest. Um, the last thing or one of the last things I want to mention is just the overall hype for the game and the atmosphere at this pro tour. I think that most pro, pro tours are like that. Like they're the, the sort of the energy is electric, but for some reason, pro tour Baltimore, I think off the back of like this world into dynasty um, outsiders was definitely a hit. I think it's a great limited format added a lot to construct it as well, but I feel like, you know, the general community was a little bit low in morale for a little bit in flesh and blood. And I feel like pro tour Baltimore just really spiked that. Like everybody was pumped. The keynote was awesome. Dust till dawn has everybody hyped and the, the meta in this, class constructed meta in combination with limited meta, I think, I think created one of the best tournaments we've ever had um so yeah i think in closing the best way you can summarize it is just like pro tour baltimore was i think a massive success and one of the best tournaments that legend story studios has ever put on tark do you agree as a player yeah and i think i was making that comment on dinner on saturday night like i think there was something ridiculous like 972 players 914 yeah <laughs> 14 excuse me yeah and, you know, I was talking to my friends who also play Magic the Gathering and they were going to SCG cons, but that's more people than their, you know, 20K tournaments get in, in the flagship game that SCG runs. So, you know, and if you consider, you know, yeah, people are coming from Europe, but only half of those people didn't make day two. So that still means that like 700 plus like localish Americans traveled and then played in this calling. I think there's a huge appetite. And, and even myself, you know, after I played this weekend, I, I messaged you know a bunch of people uh, or we were just talking about it in our group chat. I'm like, this is one of the greatest games I've ever played. Like, even though I didn't have the result I wanted, 
you know, I, I lost my winner into top eight and I was quite depressed. I still left that weekend feeling like, like this is such a fun game. Like I kind of wish I was going to Antwerp and if I didn't throw my passport in the washing machine, I probably would have bought my plane ticket to Antwerp by now. Mm-hmm. Hayden, anything from you in regards to that? I just want to firstly commiserate with Tarek on losing winnings to top eight. It's miserable. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm really sad to miss it, put it that way. Like, I'm, you know, I wish I was there. I wish I was there for that atmosphere, for the experience. I mean, PT Worlds, these high-level weekends are always fantastic. You know, regardless of sometimes the, the venue, the way the event's been run hasn't been the best experience, but the people the the game itself and how they usually unfold is is just such a great part to such a great thing to be a part of and and, you know also nailing the venue the running of the event and all these sort of periphery things that just makes it even better right so i think the future for organized play at this level of this game is is in a really good place and i think ellis has made a really smart move to kind of pull back on the pt level this year and, and get it right you know, if this is what the PT is going to look like in the future, get it right. And, um, you know, maybe next year we get we go back to P- two PTs plus Worlds or something. But I think for this year, it made sense. Yeah, I think you could feel there was a bit of a higher production value. Maybe it was just a lot of SEG just executing really, really well. But uh, even if you look at on LSS's side, um, the live blog, I mean, I think that that's, you know, a lot of people would have been like, yes, of course, that's a great idea to do that. But now that it's finally implemented, I think it was it was an absolute success. Um, and they should they should definitely keep it going the, because the standings, the standings yes, was yes. like actually well, from as a watching and f- wanting to follow like, you know, my friends, the players that I want to know about and being able to rather than just like peppering them with messages being like, how did you go? What's happening? I can like watch the standings. I can see who's being paired into each other. It was such a, a really cool thing to see as the as the day went along. I think that was actually one of the biggest things alongside the blog. Yeah, we in the we in the casting booth were also using those standings um, a lot. So yeah, great event overall. Um, last thing here, last thing to cap it off is just BNR. <laughs> what do you think is going to come in the BNR? Let's focus on class constructed. Forget about blitz for now. Um, do you think there will be any changes? If there are, what do you think there'll be? What changes would you make, Tarek? You go first. I hope there's no changes. I know there was some complaining about Oldham after the mirror match finals a couple weeks ago um but i think oldham's fine i don't even think it's particularly the best deck i think you have to play the deck into players that have probably solved how you're going to play against them and i I don't want to offend anybody but i think you know oldham really does shine against unprepared decks you know i only think oldham beats the unprepared lexis um and i think if somebody's you know practiced the matchup over and over again i don't think you want to be on the oldham side of that matchup I think Lexi is a very beatable deck. Uh, even I think this PT showed it. Um, none, there was no Lexi in the finals. Um, it has you know losable matchups in Dromai, um, Azuri, etc. So I, I think the metagame is super healthy. I hope nothing gets hit. Hayden. Well, actually, I, I completely disagree with you, Tarek. Because looking on Twitter, I think that we should be banning, you know, Codex of Frailty. We should be banning Remembrance. We should be banning uh, definitely something from Ultim. We should be banning something from Dromai uh no i mean i completely agree i hope they had nothing and i hope we just roll on through to the rest of this outside the season with with no changes i think the mid is in a a really interesting spot a good spot as well but also a really interesting spot i think of what could happen next i was a little bit down on the meta i think during my testing a little bit um but but I, but i came around i think on on what this meta could be and i still think there's some some unexplored sort of places to go and um we've got we've got dust of dawn coming very soon so that's that's already a shake up that's going to happen in in less than two months so 
Yeah, for me, also no changes, but one of my sort of core reasons for it is that I think that the meta is in a very sort of dynamic state right now. Like, I think that the meta, if we had a calling tomorrow, would be different than it was in the PT. And I think that, you know, as decks rise and fall, uh, you know, other decks become become viable, become popular, and become the potentially the best deck. It just, it doesn't feel like, to me, like the Starvo meta. It doesn't feel like the PT Leo meta. Like, it feels dynamic. Like, if Lexi becomes overwhelmingly the most represented deck, there's plenty of ways to exploit that. Ult in the same way, Jeremiah the same way. I think because of that, we're seeing this very sort of fluid, classic constructed meta that even Tarek said himself is like, it's not solved yet, and I agree with you. So, yeah, uh, hopefully no changes, but, you know, maybe in Blitz will do something. We'll see. <laughs> um, anyway, true. Tarek, thank you so much for coming on. I know it was a little bit last minute, but um, helps to have sort of a player come on and give their experiences for the Pro Tour. Uh, just want to give you a chance to shout out anything you're doing, where people can find you, etc. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, you find me at all the normal locations, Tarek Patel 10 on Twitter. Uh, if you like my writings, I write at channelfireball.com. I'm going to have a Pro Tour recap and kind of uh, what I would play, you know, my updated draw my list going into Antwerp. Uh, hopefully I'm able to make it. If I'm not, then I'll see you guys at whatever the next event is. Awesome. Well, there's a YouTube version of this podcast. If you're listening on a pod platform at youtube.com slash Arsenal Pass, Hayden and I are also on Twitter at BrendanAPG and at Fien underscore Dale. Um, got some deck text, deck guides up on the Arsenal Pass Patreon and more to come as we head into this road to national season. So go check that out. And yeah, that's it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.